So the title of my paper, as you can see from the program, is When Should or Shouldn't Human Law Change? Ethics and Assessing Legal Code. I have two parts to my paper, but when I was rereading it this morning, I realized that I have one part that stands on its own, and then the second part has two parts to it. So, it's, so there's a part one of part two and a part two of part two. Um, and if that sounds familiar, it's, it's not meant to be, um, but uh, in any case, uh, it, it's just how, how, how this works out. In any case, part one is a short reflection on a short answer to the question of my paper of when should a law change. And the second part, both part one of part two and part two of part two, is the lengthier answer of when should a law change. Uh, this is, as usual, a shorter version of a paper that will hopefully be published and which is still, which is even still part of a longer work in progress on human law and natural law. Um, I want to acknowledge or warn you that of the four papers today, this is the one least breaking ground, new ground. Rather, the long section of my paper seeks to parse Thomas Aquinas's four criteria of a binding law, which to me seems suitable to answer the question of when should or shouldn't human law change. But the reason for parsing these four criteria is they're overlooked today. Using the four criteria of a binding law or a just law as a simple thesis, a law should change whenever that law fails one of the four criteria. Now, it may, as, as just as a side note, um, I don't cover it in my paper, uh, today, but hopefully pub uh, covered in the published paper, uh, just a point on the development of a just law. Uh, that it, because I'm going to go through the four criteria and see how laws can fail in any of those four criteria. But what about just law? Can just law develop? A legal code may meet all four parts of St. Thomas's criteria and be a just law, but still be suitable for change or development in order to be more excellent. And this centers principally on Thomas's second criterion of a binding law related to the common good. A just law may change when it can better serve the common good than the current law. We can debate whether it needs to change, whether it must change, but, uh, but a, a just law uh, can develop in this way. And so it, it, in, in the published paper, I'll, I'll, I'm going to work on that a little bit more. Um, so in this manner, ethics is essential for assessing whether a just law should develop to be more excellent. The notion that ethics and a theological view of the common good should be used to assess whether a law should change or develop may not be startling for those gathered here today, but it is decidedly out of fashion in the halls of the modern academy. Um, as my closing introductory remark, I want to quote Wittgenstein to help justify the lack of my groundbreaking work today, uh, or, or lack of groundbreaking that I'm doing today. Uh, Wittgenstein uh, is uh, quoted in uh, the Philosophical Investigations saying, the work of the philosopher consists in assembling reminders for a particular purpose. Now, this is a, maybe a little bit off from what you might think of Wittgenstein since he, he was... He was uh, doing a lot of different things. But um, the point of my paper is a lot of reminders uh, that Thomas's four criteria for a binding law are still good criteria by which to judge law today. So part one, reflection on a conversation. When I happened to mention this paper to a colleague of mine in the States, I summarized the title a bit more succinctly than what's on the flyer. I called it, When Should a Law Change? My colleague's answer was first accompanied by a puzzled look on his face and then a snappy, when it needs to change. At the time, I dismissed his simplistic statement, when it needs to change, as, well, simplistic. Um, after writing this paper, I'm not so sure anymore. Um, and when it needs to change might not be all that bad of an answer to when should a law change, though there need to be a number of assumptions loaded in to back up that statement when it needs to change. Most importantly, what are the grounds for needs and what is assumed the law will change to? When this man answered me when it needs to change, surely he had some criteria in his head. So I will speculate just a little bit that he was thinking broadly that when it needs to change 
is the condition that a law is no longer just or has consequences that lead to injustice. The notion of justice was somewhere running around in the background of his answer. And if I'm right, then I'm, I'm still with him at this point in my speculation. I would agree broadly speaking with justice as a criterion for when a law should change, but we would need to go still deeper as to whether he and I agreed on what justice is. Now, since this man was, is a law professor in the United States, it's more likely than not that his conception of justice diverges from mine and is wholly consequentialist, which is the general view of, uh, of legal theory in the US right now. Uh, that his notion of justice is based on a soft instrumentalist view of law such that the purpose of law is to move society whenever there is an opportunity to negate classes, enough political willpower to attempt to achieve equality of outcome, and a political opening to push society and individuals into a social state of what I see as, as bland sameness. I suppose I'm using this poor fellow as a bit of a straw man uh, for the state of legal theory, at least in the United States today, but uh, I, I think it is fairly typical. Where law is an instrument, and when it needs to change, it's because you want to use that instrument for some end. Now, we we're going to talk today, and we've been talking all, all along today, about law as an end. But by here, uh, this is a short-term view of an end. Um, not a longer-term view of an, of an end, and not a view connected to the common good, which is what Thomas will do. This, uh, this, this view, of this instrumentalist view, uh, is a notion of justice that uh, the modern project, in my view, is, has, has uh, uh, adapted and it has pushed <clears throat> um, to something like everyone should be the same, or, or an even more pernicious, everyone should be like me. Um, if my little speculation of what this person's conception of justice is, and to the extent it is becoming the mainstream of the legal academy and latently simmering in the culture, then while I may agree on the surface with his answer, what it needs, when it needs to change, when should a law change, when it needs to change, we have radically different notion of when it needs to change and what a law should change to. Among law faculties and law givers, we are very far away today, in my view, from a notion of justice uh, that we might talk about here in an Aquinas uh, colloquium as justice as right relations among persons that balances both the means of achieving right relations as well as the outcome of relations, all with an eye to an end, human flourishing in keeping with who we are as humans rather than who an elite of intellectuals think we should be as humans. The ethics of law, the anthropology of law, and even the metaphysics of law is such today that assessing legal code has gone off its moorings to be used as just an instrument of a certain view of justice that exemplifies short-range thinking and materialism rather than law as a means to virtue, deep happiness, and friendship. Ultimately, I think Thomas does view law as a type of instrument to get to an end, but the end that he's looking at is much deeper and it's further out and it's more it's it's broadly it's broadly speaking uh, in tune with human nature. This reflection on the conversation with my colleague uh, helped me realize that the the project of this paper was simpler than I originally planned, and that Thomas has supplied the premises upon which when it needs to change, when does law need to change? when it needs to change, is based on the criteria which my, the rest of my paper will recall for you. So part two, using Thomas's criteria. Now, in this section, I must let you know that in discussing the conversation I just had with my colleague, which I'm going to keep going, I'm going to keep going back to and hopefully make clearer, I have brought you fairly deep into a forest of words and definitions. To get to Thomas's criteria, we are going to need to pass through this forest of words and stay in it a while before we see any clearing. But then again, legal code is about words and definitions. And the title of my paper involves legal code. So um, uh, as I'll say in a few moments, there's law that 
uh, is unwritten, but I want to focus on legal code. Uh, legal code is about words and definition. Much of what lawyers do who work in the arena of code is toil with seeking out definitions for the words in a code, and then if there is no definition, seeking out other means of deciphering what a word in a code means. So, a brief point on words and law. Before we consider whether a law needs to change, we need to understand the words of a law. If we can't know what a law means, then we can't really tell whether it needs to change, or maybe in and of itself, if we can't understand what a law means, then maybe that simply says on its face it needs to change. In an ordinary law, we sometimes do not know what the law means until the state enforces it. It will become more evident as I string together the thoughts of this paper uh, that I would argue that, the, that that is an inappropriate law. That's not a binding law. It's not a just law. If the only way we know what the law means is when the state enforces it. We need to understand the meaning of a legal code in order for that law to be binding on us and, and for that law to be just. If we don't understand the meaning of the code, then it needs to be changed. And by don't, it might, might be that an individual needs some elucidation on, on the code and some explanation of it, but if, if no one can reasonably understand it, then that's going to be uh, a problem under promulgation and it's going to need to be changed. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, and I'm starting to talk about some of the criteria for when a law should change. Before we get there, we need to retrace our steps and go back to the first steps in the forest of words. Uh, I have been for the past 15 minutes now referencing law. What do I mean by law? Well, uh, I'll go back uh, 5,000 miles <laughs> into the, the forest of, uh, of words to the state of California. The state of California has a definition of law in its laws. The definition of law in California is, law is a solemn expression of the will of the supreme power of the state. I'll read that again in case you missed it. Law is a solemn expression of the will of the supreme power of the state. Okay. I see Professor Carroll back there, who teaches a lot in Beijing. I don't even know if in Beijing they would be as bold to say that this is what law means. Uh, they are certainly committed to the rule of law. It's, uh, it's, you see it everywhere in China. Inter interesting. Yeah. Very good. Um, but, well, needless to say, this notion that law is a supreme expression of the will of the, of the supreme power of the state is not a definition I, I will adopt. I'll adopt Thomas's definition of a law which Father Richard described earlier um, and uh, also emphasized what he noted that it's an ordinance of reason for the common good um, made by him who protect, uh, by, by the individual who has the care of the community and promulgated. This definition of Thomas does convey that there is a type of force to law. There's no question that the state of California's definition of law has force behind it. Um, Thomas certainly uh, sees law as, uh, as, as something in society that has, has force. But importantly, Thomas states that law is an ordinance of reason, an ordinance of reason, not the expression of the will of the power of the state. Law as defined by the state of California is positivism in the extreme, not only connecting law to merely the whim of the state, but connecting it to the power or force of the state. What's more, it describes will, something unique to humans, to the state. So law is an expression of the will of the state. Uh, if you were responsible for a government with that definition of law, as I just described, then the answer to the question, when does law need to change, might well be a tautology. When does law need to change? When it changes. Whenever the state changes it. The fact that the state changed the law is evident that it needed to change, and apparently whatever a law says, it need not change until the state changes it. It's, it's the, the, the law itself is void. It's, it, it's, it's, its justification is backed solely by that force or will of the state. 
Nothing deeper need to be said in a California concept of law about the criteria or goals of a law. Nothing uh, neither be said, need to be said about when does a law need to be changed. No antecedent injustice as a precursor to change in law. Simply the will of the state answers the question of when a law should be changed. And the action of the state grounds the change in law as sufficient for justice. So when I ask the question of when does law need to change, for the rest of my paper, I will not be referencing the supreme power of the state as the mover of change, or referring back to reason and the common good, and uh, as we'll see in a few moments, the two other criteria um, that Thomas sets out. It strikes me that the state of California's curious definition of the word law is, aside from being a little bit creepy, uh, it suggests law is only a manifestation of the state, that law starts and stops with the state. In my title, I refer to code. So we must go deeper into this forest of words and look at the term code. I mean here written law or law that is easily written down. I'll explain what I mean in a moment by easily written down code. A code might be what we think of when we think of laws promulgated by the state, the, the most usual uh, notion of law, a dictate of the state which commands a passenger in an automobile must restrain himself with a seatbelt. Okay, a command written down, we clearly understand what it, what it means. Um, and I mean legal code as any binding rule which enjoins an action or induces a person to do good. So I think that Thomas, although he, as he's talking about human law, he's, he's not just talking about law of the state. He's also talking about binding rules in communities and societies that are less than the state. So households, uh, ed, ed, uh, colleges, universities, um, uh, these rules and the, the, the binding nature, the morally binding nature of these rules uh, are, uh, are applicable. It might be a rule of the university. So a legal code might be something that the university has, such as a student's written work must be original and not copied from another source without referencing the originating work. Or a good local rule of the Bodleian Library. All library cardholders here at Oxford must read out loud a statement, the reader's oath, their understanding of the rules of the use of the library. And this requires them to recite in part, and this is my favorite part of the, of, of the oath, I hereby undertake not to bring into the library or kindle therein any fire or flame. Luckily, in the past five months, I have not kindled any flames or fires in the library, so I still have my library card. But after reciting out loud these, the big rules in the reader's oath of the Bodleian, the, the reader's oath ends with a very sweeping commitment. I promise to obey all the rules of the library. I confess I do not know where all the rules of the library are, but I am sure they are somewhere written down um, even if they're not uh, easily understood. Um, so, but the, um, so the point here is, is that uh, they're somewhere, and um, I'm going to assume I'm going to give uh, good faith to the library system here at the university that I can find them if I, if I want them. So I'm not, I'm not arguing that the library rules are, are unjust. My point is that those rules of the library are a type of human law. They're a type of binding rule, more, uh, morally binding rule on us. They are legal code as I, as I describe in, in this paper and are subject to the criteria of what I will discuss and Thomas's four uh, criteria of, of binding law. Code might also be the, role, the rule of a local community. I've no doubt here at Blackfriars, the Dominicans have some rules. Do you have some rules? I'm sure you have plenty of rules, yes. Um, there may also be a household or family rule, such as do your homework before you watch television. Now, here's where I must go back to the easily written down code to lump it into my discussion of legal code, and that, and, and that what I'm discussing here also applies to easily written down code. Uh, I think of the household rule as an easily written down rule. It has been articulated simply and clearly by the authority of the household who has care of the community, the community being the household, and is easily understood by the regulated actors, the children. There does not need to be enforcement to know what is meant by this rule. 
So I will count these easily written down rules by what I mean by legal code today. Now, as a side note, and to talk about unwritten law, and to just mention it and put it aside, and it was discussed a bit earlier this morning, uh, that uh, the unwritten law can have the same force and effect of law and needs to meet the criteria uh, of a just law, of a binding law, though uh, even though they're not written down in words or they're not easily written down in words. The Constitution of the United Kingdom is something more like custom or convention than code, but it is still human law and still subject to the criteria of what constitutes binding law. Also in both the United States and in England, we share the same common law. The common law system is a system of unwritten laws, principles of justice that can be enforced by courts, but no written code backs up these principles. We have a millennium of court cases that have sorted through these non-code laws. It's a question for another day of how unwritten law develops or changes and when, when it doesn't have words to work with. But for now, I'll leave aside those laws that don't have written words and focus on those with written words. So, back into the forest of words. I started at the beginning, that I stated at the beginning that I will use Thomas's conception of, uh, of a binding law as a backdrop for answering when a law should change. Thomas's definition of a binding law uh, is as follows, and we've heard this a couple times today, an ordinance of reason for the common good made by him who has care of the community and promulgated. So if we break this out, it has four parts. Number one, an ordinance of reason. Number two, for the common good. Number three, made by him who has care of the community. And four, promulgated. Okay. Failing any of these criteria requires a law to change. Failing any of these laws, uh, failing any of these criteria would, be, uh, would render the law an attempted law or an unjust law, or as Thomas would say, no law at all. I'm going to deal with these criteria each uh, and, and parse them out, but I'm going to deal with them out of order. I'm going to start at the end and work, work, work back up. Uh, so let's look at the fourth criterion. The law must be promulgated. In other words, the law must be known. A law is not just when it is a secret law or when it is placed on a notice board so high that no one can see. Or perhaps if we look at a household or a smaller community, there might be a, a, a new rule that's placed in a cupboard in the kitchen that only the cook will see, or an interloper in the middle of the night looking for a midnight snack. That rule should not bind the community if it is too hard to know. Furthermore, a law is not properly promulgated if it is not understandable. If the only way the words of a code can be known is when it is enforced, then that law is not understandable, and it has failed to be promulgated in an adequate, adequate way. It has failed to be written in an understandable way. If a law fails this promulgation criterion, then the law must be changed. However, this is a procedural change point. Okay. So at this point, although there's four criteria, this, first, this last criterion, which I'm dealing with first, if the law fails, the law needs to change, but it's a procedural change. The substance of the law may still be appropriate, may still be an ordinance of reason for the common good, but the regulated actor or attempted to be regulated actor should not be punished for non-compliance of this legal code, which she cannot understand. The change in the law must be that it needs to be re-promulgated in the right way, assuming that the substance of the law is okay. It needs to have clearer words or fewer words or placed not in a hidden cupboard in the kitchen, but posted clearly on a community board where everyone knows new rules are posted. The law must be changed, but the change may not change its goal. So by change, I may mean re-promulgation or better promulgation by better writing. 
So uh, we seem to have doubled back again into, the into this forest of words since I've just used a simple word like change in a way to give it a meaning you may not have thought about in the context of changing law. Change in a law is usually referring to the substance of the law, that the goal of a law should change, such as fire extinguishers must be red is changed to fire extinguishers must be blue. This is where the divide between practical lawyers in the house, if there are any, and philosophers is probably open to Fisher. The practical lawyers might be saying, good grief, he's going to dwell on what the word change means, while the philosophers are, are probably saying, good grief, he's going to dwell on the, what the word change means, and no one knows what the word change means except I. Uh, so, so in any case, uh, since I live somewhere in the middle of a practical lawyer and a philosopher, I will adopt, in the context of legal discourse, a very simple definition of change that will probably leave no one happy, but I think will suit us for the next 20 minutes. Change is when X becomes Y, but in legal discourse, there are two types of ways X becomes Y. Change in law is either substantive or procedural. A substantive change in law is when the command changes so that fire extinguishers all, must all now be blue rather than red. While a procedural change will keep the command that a fire extinguisher be red, but the rule's posture by which the command becomes binding changes. It is formally promulgated and public notice received rather than some type of hidden law. Okay. Thomas's third criteria, working backwards, is that the law be made by someone who has care for the community. Again, this is a procedural matter, though an important one often overlooked. So I think of the four, number three, number four, are focused on procedural matters in the law. And as we'll see in a moment, number one and number two will be focused on substantive matters in the law. An easy example uh, of this particular uh, criterion that the law be made by someone who has care for the community may be here in the aula, which is the main classroom at Blackfriars. If a student were to set a rule in the classroom that the lecturer must use a red marker on the whiteboard, which is hidden behind that, that board there, um, so if, the, so if the, the student gets together and, and puts a sign uh, uh, up here that says lecturers must use red markers on whiteboards, then we would likely say that the lecturer is not bound by that rule because the student has no authority to issue such a rule. Now, how might uh, this, this uh, particular uh, attempted rule, attempted law, might have a just cause? How might that be? Well, it might be that the case that the lecturer is regularly inclined to use a yellow marker that many students in the back of the room can't read. And justice might be crying out for a red marker that can be read from the back of the room. But no student has the authority to issue this rule in this room. The red marker revolution might take hold and all the students demand the lecturer use a red marker. But even this mob of students with a just cause has no authority to issue this rule, rule. Now the lecturer might reconsider his use of the yellow marker in light of the complaints and thereby establish a rule, albeit self-imposed, that he would use a red marker. Or maybe the hue and cry goes up and the regent uh, establishes the rule. Or since the regent isn't here, the vice regent might establish the rule that the red marker uh, would be used. Then the red marker revolution could be attempted in, in, uh, could have attempted a law in the classroom that has the appearance of law, but it not be law because the students have no authority to make that law. It may have a good aim and substance, but the red marker rule is not a binding rule on the lecturer until whoever has the care of the community in this classroom um, promulgates that rule. Consequently, Having the right authority change a law is a necessary procedural change in the law to accord with Thomas's four criteria and this particular third criterion. So 
if a written rule is promulgated by someone who has no authority to promulgate, who is not in the position of having care of the community, then the law should change, procedurally change. It might still, uh, the substance of it might still be saved. If you indulge me a few moments to ponder the need for a change in the law in the United States, I will go back to what I opened with and to the extreme and go into the hyper-technical regulations that I work in um, in the United States. But I, I, won't, I won't bore you uh, too much with, uh, with, with, with some of their technicalities. So, so the area that I work in in regulations deals with the U.S. healthcare system, particularly the reimbursement of healthcare services during clinical trials and biomedical research. Um, so it's, it's super, super specialized um, in, in that area. Contrary to what you may have heard, the U.S. government is heavily involved in the uh, healthcare system. Uh, since 1965, uh, the federal government uh, has uh, paid for one-third to one-half of all U.S. health care. Currently, it pays one-half of all payments to hospitals and physicians, constituting over $1.2 trillion per year, approximately 900 billion pounds per year that the federal government pays to hospitals and physicians in the United States. Now, all of this money comes with laws which must be complied with in order to receive the law. And here is the kicker. The cumulative total of these laws in order to receive federal payments to by hospitals and physicians are over 200,000 pages in their volume. So without going into great detail, and uh, I probably do not need to engage in a long argument to convince you that many hospitals and physicians find it impossible to comply with 200 pages of complex laws. Inside those laws, some of them are clear and some of them are not so clear. I'd argue many of them are not so clear. Uh, but I would propose that, that in this instance, we can't look at an individual law but we must look at the body of laws which the regulated actor must comply with. This body of laws is not readable by the regulated actor. It's not even readable by the regulator and is therefore not adequately promulgated. It is a blur of confusion. This body may, also, may, may fail also other criteria of Thomas's, but at a minimum, I want to go back to the fourth criterion, it is not promulgated in a way that the actor can know what the law as a body is. This body of law needs to change. Now, I'm not saying that the substance of these regulations need to change, but I will leave it simply that it seems to me that this body of law needs to be simplified, more accessible in its words and how it's written. It needs to be repromulgated um, in order to meet that fourth criterion. But there is a deeper issue with this body of law related to the U.S. healthcare system, which goes to the third criterion. What the $1.2 trillion pay for is greatly argued and debated and not always clear. But when a healthcare provider seeks reimbursement, if they're seeking for reimbursement from the federal government for something that the rule does not cover, or they're not supposed to ask for money for this, they're subject to enormous penalties. 85% of what is paid or reimbursed by the federal health care programs, particularly the Medicare program, which is the program that covers uh, health care for individuals who are 65 and older, 85% of what it pays for is decided by private companies that have contracts with the federal government to administer the funds. In 1965, when Congress uh, uh, designed Medicare and promulgated it, it specifically delegated the authority to pay out and to pay hospitals and physicians uh, uh, to private companies who would have contracts with the federal government to administer the federal funds. Now, my problem and the problem that I see in the third criterion is not that there are private companies administering the funds, the government funds, but that the private companies are allowed to promulgate regulations that are enforced as law. So 
1965, we go back, 1965, Congress uh, establishes this new program. Uh, it does not have, the federal government does not have the ability to administer the program or pay out the claims, so it contracts with private companies to do this. But it also uh, does not have the manpower uh, to figure out what to pay for. So it delegates the decision about what to pay for to these private companies. And in statute, it gives these private companies the ability to adopt what are called local coverage determinations that are enforced by law. You can get even a little bit more complicated on the site. We have something in the US called the False Claims Act, which allows for quitam actions, that allows for individuals to uh, essentially be bounty hunters and look around in the 200,000 pages of rules and if anyone is out of compliance, file a suit on behalf of, of the federal government and, uh, and receive a portion of the rewards. So these private companies are able to make law, which is enforced by the state or enforced by uh, quitam relators. So uh, not complying with these private laws uh, or delegated uh, laws, uh, law delegated to private companies, suffers a hospital or physician significant penalties, and not complying with these regulations with specific intent may end up with criminal liability on the part of the hospital or the physician. These private companies have not gone rogue because they promulgate these regulations with the cover of authority of Congress. But the U.S. Constitution reserves legislating laws to the U.S. Congress. And none of this, in my view, is allowed in the U.S. Constitution. With minor exceptions, the president can issue laws on his own authority under Article II of the U.S. Constitution. But otherwise, legislation is reserved exclusively to Congress. It certainly does the Constitution Again, my reading, I don't think it's a controversial reading. Uh, it does not delegate to private companies or private citizens the ability to make law on behalf of the United States. It strikes me that a private company cannot act as the alter ego of the state if the written constitution does not allow such a thing. Accordingly, these local coverage determinations, which put many regulated actors at risk if they are not complied with, are an example of law that should be changed. Even if what is appropriately adopted by Congress or the appropriate regulating agency is the same rule that the private companies have adopted. The substance might be the same, but, but it, 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 the, these rules have not, been, uh, they've not been promulgated by someone who has care of the community. So back to my framing question, when should a law be changed? When the attempted law is not properly promulgated, when should a law change? Uh, when the attempted law is issued by someone who does not have care of the community. Okay, so I've taken care of the last two criteria. I'll go back up to the first two criteria for the last 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, so with the first two criteria, law is an ordinance of reason for the common good. It's very difficult to tease these out as two distinct criteria unlike the third and fourth. The question of reason and the common good, how do we tell whether something is an ordinance of reason without also exploring what is the common good? I'll try to tackle the, the first criterion of reason quickly in the negative in order to focus, focus more on the second criterion and perhaps back, en back end into a more positive uh, discussion of, of, of what an ordinance of reason might be. So. Uh, in saying what it does not mean to have law as an ordinance of reason, here are some, some points. Law that is adopted in the heat of passion or during inflamed times seems to me to be contrary to reason or likely to be contrary to reason. Law that requires the impossible is not an ordinance of reason. Law that is contrary to human nature is not an ordinance of reason. Law that leads to injustice is not an ordinance of reason. The negatives I presented have a continuum from passion to injustice. And I will admit that on one spectrum, one side of the spectrum, 
there is an opportunity, though slim, that law adopted in the heat of passion may be reasonable, uh, and much more possible than law that's that, that requires the impossible. Attempted law that requires the impossible simply can't be in accordance with reason. Law adopted in the heat of passion is rarely reasonable because there is little time to think through the consequences of the rule being adopted. Some troublemaker or troublemaking stirs up things and the mob demands something. The history of humanity is replete with examples of demands of the mob going horribly wrong when the lawgiver gives in. And why should we be surprised when that goes wrong? Don't we see this in ourselves? Decisions made while our emotions are inflamed are often imprudent because our thinking is clouded. The mob almost never thinks clearly, let alone the lawgiver who gives into the mob in order to quiet them. Though I admit, occasionally, the mob can be right. It might be right that the students rise up and demand the lecturer use a marker that is able to be read in the back of the room. Uh, but it seems to me that it's rare that the mob is right, and it's rare that laws made inflamed in passion um, will be reasonable. So the laws that are, arise in the flames of passion is one side of the spectrum. Law is likely not to be an ordinance of reason um, in those situations. The other side, as I mentioned, is when a law requires the impossible. Although I said I would uh, stick to legal code, I, I will take a little side trip for a moment into private law and common law to illustrate uh, this only because I happened to see it this week. Um, on, on how uh, laws um, can, um, in terms of, uh, of being impossible. And, and, uh, uh, and, and this happened in the context of a contract, actually two contracts. So an individual mentioned to me that he was asked to sign two contracts with the same company. Contract one required that the individual not do X. Contract two required that the individual do X. I'm going to use this in my classes in the fall when I'm back in Loyola because it's perfect <laughs> example for uh, students studying contracts. So, so contract one, do not do X. Contract two, do X. The X was related to some technology that the company utilizes. Now in Anglo-American law, we have a canon of interpretation in which the last in time contract would be given more weight than the first in time contract if there were a contradiction between the two contracts. But in this instance, the contracts were to be signed at the same time. It would be impossible for the individual to comply with these contracts. Comply with one, but to comply with one would be to not be in compliance with the other, and vice versa. Now, um, fortun fortunately, the issue was quickly resolved when the company realized the mistake and simply deleted the clause from the first contract and left the clause from the second contract to be the, the ruling clause. But this situation of impossibility is not unusual in heavily regulated situations with voluminous uh, rules that, uh, that an actor needs to comply with. And it's, it's simply not uncommon for those of us who work in regulations to come across regulations that contradict each other. Or also when two distinct authorities regulate something differently and the laws are given equal weight, what do you do? So in the arena of biomedical research that I work in in the United States, there are multiple regulating agencies, multiple regulatory schemes that, that regulate biomedical research and human subject human subject research. Those regulating agencies sometimes disagree with each other and they regulate the same act in different ways. And things have to be resolved. Or the regulated actor has to choose which law they're going to comply with. Which agency are they most worried about? Um, it's a real quandary. Um, so, uh, Back to my question, as I've explored this uh, uh, with the impossibility in, the, in, the, uh, in this criterion. Uh, so when does a law need to change? When it is not an ordinance of reason. Um, and it, this can be uh, talked about in many ways. As I said, it's substituting the various, uh, various ways of thinking 
uh, about what is not an ordinance of reason, something that is impossible to do, something that is contrary to human nature. And, and I do think and there's quite a bit to do and explore on laws that may require someone to do something contrary to human nature or to set up conditions which induce society to contravene human nature. But we're wandering back into the forest of words again since we would need to define human nature. And luckily the clock is ticking away fast and I don't have time to define human nature and we'll set that aside. Um, so I can get to the last criterion, uh, which is actually Thomas's second criterion. Um, a just law must be for the common good, or a binding law must be for the common good, an ordinance of reason for the common good. When should a law be changed? When it is not in accordance with the common good. What is the common good? Well, what does Thomas mean by the common good? Uh, St. Thomas, to my knowledge, does not have a succinct definition of the common good, but I'm very happy to be contradicted on that. Uh, even though he uses the term common good very freely in multiple parts of, of, his, of his work, not just in the treatise of law, of law. There are a couple of ways to think of the common good, and, and Thomas, in the treatise on law, does think of the common good in a negative way of, well, what is not the common good? The common good is not law that is made for the particular benefit of individuals. So uh, if a law is only going to benefit an individual, that's not a law for the common good. It's not going to meet the second criterion. However, I think, and uh, I, I'm not going to say that it's a consensus because the room of Thomists that are here will erupt, that there's any consensus over what, what, uh, how to, how, how to uh, uh, characterize Thomas's conception of the common good. But I'll simply say, in a very simplistic way, that Thomas means by the common good the totality of goods that allow human flourishing. The common good is a teleological notion for Thomas. It is an end. And it's a much deeper, further end than the instrumentalist short-term end that I talked about at the beginning of my paper. So, indeed, buried in the second criterion of four is the end of law, the common good. The common good needs to be set out, as I mentioned, much more deeply than I can do here in the last few minutes. It's a term that's bandied about and broadly means quite different things to different people. It's a word that at first blush, we think we all know, but then evaporates in a few seconds of reflection. It's also a word that's, in my view, greatly misused today. Last year, Robert Reich, the former Secretary of Labor in the United States wrote a book called The Common Good. And he explores his conception of the common good. Here is Secretary Reich's definition of the common good. Quote, the common good consists of our shared values about what we owe one another as citizens who are bound together in the same society. Read that again. I apologize, I don't have a handout for this. The common good consists of our shared values about what we owe one another as citizens who are bound together in the same society. It's interesting that he anchors the common good in duties as I read this. Shared values about what we owe one another as, as citizens. It's very duty-oriented, but it has no end, as far as I can tell. And in reading his book, I, I can't find an end, other than some politically correct, uh, you know, short-term goals that the, the, the law would be used as an instrument. Um, so it's, it's very duty-oriented. It doesn't have an end. But is it a duty to do what? Whatever it is, we owe each other as citizens. And he uses this term very, I think, very carefully, as citizens, what we owe each other as citizens. What about non-citizens? Does the common good have anything to do with non-citizens? He, he does say that it does. But figuring out what those duties are is a duty of citizens. I don't quite understand where he's going with the common good, being exclusive to citizens, but this seems to suggest 
the common good has something to do with the state. If what the common good is and what we must do is determined by citizens. Perhaps the citizens make up the will of the supreme power of the state. I don't know. Now, as a Rhodes Scholar, Secretary Reich received an MPhil from University College and not Blackfriars. So uh, you're not responsible. No one's here responsible for this book. Um, for Secretary Reich, the common good uh, couldn't be further from Thomas's view of the common good. Um, and if we apply his view of the common good, of when does law change? Well, when does law need to change? It seems like it needs, and if the common good is, is an end, and he does talk about it as a type of end of law, then it's very fluid based on what we as citizens decide are our shared values and what we owe to each other. It's not very normative at all. Um, Thomas is not, as is the theme today, and Thomas is not saying that law must be set the same forever, but that it can change or develop. Um, but the common good uh, is, is going to be the end. And what is the common good for, for Thomas? Well, the common good is to be happy. It is, it is more than the sum of its parts. It's the ground for flourishing. Um, and for some people, and perhaps for Secretary Reich, perhaps the ground, that, that the common good is the grounds for flourishing, that may look as, uh, a, 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 as slippery and as uh, imprecise as my reading of his view of, of the common good. But I think it's a deeper and it's a more long-term um, uh, view of what is the common good. And of course, what lies behind this is something that we don't have time, I don't have time to go into, is human nature. Because what is the common good? If we are to be happy, we have to be happy as who we are as humans. So the common good is intrinsically related to uh, human nature. And this is where the ethics finally comes in. The ethics of, of, of looking at legal code to determine when must it change. What are the conditions by which allow people to reach fulfillment? What is that fulfillment? Virtue, happiness, friendship. Ultimately, for Thomas, God is the final common good. The common good is not a sum of parts. It is something distinct. It is the groundwork for flourishing. How do we know whether a law succeeds in being for the common good? I suggest we substitute some words for the common good to better understand it. The law should seek to move people to flourish, encourage them to be virtuous, impede acts that hamper flourishing and virtue. But if a law is going to encourage human flourishing, we need to know what flourishing looks like for a human. We, need, we, are, we run back again to that understanding of human nature. It seems we never wander out of that forest of definitions and distinctions and what do words mean. Maybe that's okay. Or maybe this paper is just caught up in the mind of a lawyer who is obsessed with definitions. Um, so when should a law change? In this fourth criterion, when it is not in accord with human nature, I would say, is also a substitute for when it is not in accord with the common good, when it impedes human flourishing, when it distorts friendship. So in conclusion, when should or shouldn't a law change? When it needs to change. But what does it mean to need to change? It needs to change when it hasn't been promulgated properly when it hasn't been issued by proper authority, when it is not in accord with reason, and when it does not seek the common good, or to put it slightly differently, when the law fails to promote human flourishing. There's still a lot to parse and debate in these four criteria, but the purpose of my paper, ultimately, to go back to the beginning, is to remind you that Thomas had it right all along in the criteria by which to judge whether a law should change. Thank you.